Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. How's it going, Ian? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. No major injuries this week? Nothing crazy going on in the life of Rachel? That is, that is weird. Hey, you know what? I'm off to uh, New Jersey slash New York City, so got the podcast to do, and then off I go. Off to see some old friends? Exactly. Off to see some old friends. I'm actually seeing the Sens play the Devils, funny enough. Nice. Uh, With John Hines, who has not been fired. Exactly. has uh, helped turn things around a little bit. I mean, things were a complete disaster there uh, the first couple weeks of the season, and now it's going a bit better, but... We're not going to be talking about the Devils today. We're going to be talking about analytics, which is what this podcast, a lot of it is about, you know, staff and graph. We want to talk about how the analytics and the coaching aspect of games maybe interact with each other. And the big question that I want to ask today is, what do the numbers miss? What do analytics miss? Sometimes when we're looking at a a chart of a player or a, a specific statistic of a player, and you watch a game and you go, wait, no, those two things don't match up. I watched this game very closely and I thought that this player played well, but individually his statistics didn't look very good. In the aggregate, I feel like in a large sample, if you're living in the offensive zone, things are going to be positive. You're doing something right of course. to help earn those results. But in a one game sample, things can be a bit wonky. So I want to talk about some things that maybe we can look for in smaller samples and players or maybe even in larger samples. I'm just curious about what the numbers miss and why the eye test can matter if you're looking for the right things. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a few examples, and I know that you do report cards for the Leafs, and I don't know why, but like sometimes I wade into the comments section, which folks just don't do it. Never do it. Never read the comments. It's a lot of Nylander. Oh my God. But I see things like, oh, like, why'd you grade this player, like, good or bad? Like, they played really well, or their game score says this, or the stat sheet said this. And that's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, like, you know what? And the the perfect example is the other night, like, Matthews had the game-winning goal, but he was legitimately awful for all but two shifts. And his game score will come out because he's got the goal, and that has a significant impact on the game. But I'm sorry, if you have two shifts where you're good, that's not a good game. And then sometimes it can go the other way, where you have an amazing game and your line mates played like crap, so you ended up stuck in your own zone for a little bit. Uh, your line mates didn't finish on the great passes that you made to them in the slot. Uh, you generated tons of zone time, but again, the other four players on the ice for your team weren't helping you as much as they probably should have. So I think in one respect you could say that, well, maybe line mates are something that really impact results that maybe aren't necessarily showing up in the numbers, but... I feel like the regression models that we have, you know, whether it's the RAPM or Michael Blake McCurdy's heat maps do a really good job of adjusting for that. I guess the one argument you could make is that if a player spends an entire season with the same line mate, it's difficult to know who's the one driving success or who's the one driving failure in that specific instance. Yeah, I would say there's definitely some numbers that you can look to, but there's also, that's when you have to hashtag watch the game. Um, If you're, playing on a line where every single puck battle uh, turns into an adventure and, and most likely a, a lost puck battle, maybe that's not something that gets tracked by broadcasts or things like that. But on the whole, 
there are definitely things where if you're playing with your line mates and then all of a sudden you get put with a different group of line mates over a three or four game sample and you look to be playing a little better, your numbers are a little better, then maybe we can relate it back to the line mates that you're playing against. But I think you maybe rely on the eye test a little bit more from that aspect of it just because, I mean, we talk about publicly available data. There isn't a lot of it. And it's shots, shot locations, which again, those those matter. And those definitely as matter. many people evolving hockey and Micah admitted, when the NHL gets their locations wrong, it totally screws up their data. So unless but you have it's, something, it's been fixed. It's all been fixed. But what I'm saying is, unless you have something that tracks it, so Sport Logic has an algorithm, which I'm pretty sure all 31 NHL teams pay for. Unless you have something that's not humanly tracked, you are very much on on the accuracy reliance portion of it and that's what things like evolving hockey and and Micah's data had an issue with at the beginning of the year because the shot locations were grossly inaccurate so when you're relying on the public data it's it's a little bit more difficult because I have dealt with NHL off-ice officials and there's a reason I don't trust the NHL data well I'll just leave it at that Whoever is working at Madison Square Garden, I just I I don't know what they're doing there. It is it's always way off. Sometimes the shots in the wrong zone. It's just it's it's brutal. Yeah, so I would say like you have to be with public data. The problem there is there's a lot of scraping done from the NHL play-by-play data and I would say it is more often than not that that data is uh questionable. Questionable, interesting. Yeah, we'll go with questionable. Like, sometimes they get it right, but then some other times it's like, uh, no. (laughs) So another thing I'm thinking about when it comes to something that wouldn't necessarily show up in a stat sheet is, let's say the puck's in the offensive zone and your defenseman just loses the puck on the blue line, the other forward beats him, and now it's looking like it could be a breakaway or two-on-one the other way. And F3, the third forward high in the in the offensive zone, back checks like a maniac and makes it a two-on-two or makes it a one-on-one, makes it uh, an even man rush instead of an odd man rush. Right. That is going to reduce the opposition's chances of scoring like crazy. Like that really helps your team, but it's not something that is going to show up in in a public metric, I don't think very well. It might a little bit, to a certain extent. Players who do that with consistency are, are probably going to have better defensive impacts. Like but Mark I really Stone? Think that, or, you know, Miko Koivu, Patrice Bergeron, Sean Couturier, p- take your pick, you know, the yeah. good defensive players. But I think sometimes that odd man rush differential, like players who can really generate odd man rushes for with their speed, like a Kasperi Kapanen or a Michael Grabner, and players who can really take it away defensively by backchecking, I think that's something that might not necessarily be captured in the numbers. And we all know that an odd man rush, the shooting percentage is way higher than if it were taking any other situation. But the public metrics, we don't we aren't able to recognize what an odd man rush is and what isn't. We just see that a shot's taken from a certain location. But if I know that that shot was a breakaway, or if I know that that shot was a two-on-one, I'm going to go, well, that doubles the shooting percentage, like the expected chance of that puck going in, because it's way harder for the goalie to stop it. It's not in the public metrics, but it really matters. So I think one of those things you can look at in the odd man rushes is a good example. Um, This is where you have no choice but to rely on the eye test. Let's say a player finishes with a negative game score or you generally, like his numbers aren't very good, let's say. But if you've watched the game and let's say this player has 
is a defenseman, has broken up a three-on-two and two two-on-ones and severely impacted a player's ability on a breakaway to get a, a bona fide scoring chance, I would say that's probably a pretty good performance, right? You're taking, you're consistently taking away scoring chances, and those still might end up as shot attempts against. But if you have significantly impeded the ability to get the higher quality chance, I would argue that that's one, pretty difficult to measure, and two, something that's will get valued by fans and coaches because there's so many times I'm sitting in a hockey rink and there's a two-on-one and all of a sudden it gets broken up and there's a loud cheer from the crowd. Well, that's not going to show up on the score sheet, but that's something that could be remembered as a a game-changing play. You could also think about that offensively, a player who just misses a backdoor pass. The XG on that is zero because there was no shot, but... It was so close to being a tap-in. Right. So you miss that pass by three inches and it's a face-off at center ice or it doesn't even count in the expected goal. So it really doesn't measure, which is why I think with expected goals, we need to have some build-up play and we don't have that because we don't have public data yet. Yeah, the, the pre-shot, was there a pass prior to this shot? Where did it come from? Oh, that pass went through the middle of the slot? Yeah, that's going to give the goaltender a nightmare. Like, that's going to really increase the shooting percentage. Or if you have a team that relies on a lot of, like, straight line, straight line like, lone wolf rushes where the goaltender is able to cheat and come way out of his crease to cut down the angle, that's going to really drop the shooting percentage of, of a shot. That, that shot's probably not going to go in. So understanding the context of where were the other players on the ice when the shot was taken? Was it off the rush? Were there passing options available? Sometimes you don't even need to make a pass for the goalie to cheat a little bit the other way. For example, if I'm on a three-on-two and I fake a pass and then I shoot it short side, the goaltender might cheat a little bit because he knew that there might be a threat of a pass to the other side of the ice. Even when we get the public data of knowing that, hey, there was a, there was a pass from here and the player shot it from here, there can be a, uh, a situation where a player shoots the puck and there wasn't a pass prior to it. But if there were passing options available, it's something that the defense and the goaltender need to account for. Absolutely, and it it would increase the goaltender's workload, which is something that teams are trying to measure and everyone's trying to measure it. I mean, it's definitely a hot topic in Toronto. Hashtag load management, baby. Just get Michael Hutchinson more starts. Yeah, well, he's got to make a save first. Um, I would say... Plenty of them, after he gave up four goals. Mm -hmm. I read your report cards, Ian. I did not hashtag watch the game, though. I had other uh, commitments yesterday. You missed a doozy. Or two, whatever it is. We record on Monday, okay? This isn't a surprise. Um, yeah, I would say that it's it's even difficult in the private data to assess whether there are passes or not. Um, I know that some of the privatized data doesn't even account for that. So that is where the eye test comes in. It becomes a significantly harder shot to deal with if it's a two-on-one or a three-on-two or a breakaway. Like, it, it, it's way different, and that's sort of where you need to have the eye test, and you can't, for lack of a better word, have a computer coaching your team. Yeah, and that's the hard part, is that you want to use numbers in cases where you can't watch every single team play every single game of the regular season. You'd lose your mind. I think the closest thing we have to it is uh, Corey Schneider, 
not the actual goalie, but the uh, online manual tracking Corey Schneider, who yeah. manually tracks as many games as he can. I think he usually gets to about 30 for every team. Every I end year. up, I think there was one season I actually, my doctor challenged me to, to track how many games I watched. And if you included like junior hockey, I was up near like 1300 games. <laughs> Yeah, that's not that's not healthy. And, uh, yeah, and that was outside. before that was yeah that was before New Jersey. So uh, I watched. Were you watching more or less hockey once you started working for New Jersey? Uh, I watched less than thirteen hundred games, but I watched you know, still over a thousand. I would say not all NHL games, but so that's, that's in a three hundred sixty-five day year, or is that in a six-month regular season? Uh, probably. So I'd watch some in the summer, but then you think about World Juniors, there's two or three games a day. Um, OHL, like I'll watch two, I would watch like two games a day of junior hockey. Plus you have the NHL games. Um, I'm not afraid to admit that I pretty much watched every Leaf game while I worked in New Jersey just because the schedule was kind of aligned and allowed that to happen. So I'd have it on in the background. Uh, my DMs on Twitter will confirm that. <laughs> the DM group chats. <laughs> Yeah, me, you, and Dom basically just oh, like arguing man. about report cards. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But I would say, yeah, Corey Schneider does. He watches a ton of hockey, and he actually has to track, whereas I watched for eye test purposes. I was going to say, shouldn't your starting goalie have uh, been focusing on his play instead of uh, tracking some oh, games? Well, he was, oh, no, he different. Was, he different was injured for Schneider. over half the year that year, so. <laughs> I mean, what, what's his excuse this year? I'd love to know. I couldn't tell I think, you, but Mackenzie Blackwood done. shut the door against Vancouver, so I mean. Oh. You know, he's just, he's a winner. That's what he is. No. Uh, <laughs> we're not going down that road. <laughs> but getting back to the idea of passing in the offensive zone being an important aspect, this is something that I've always believed in. Uh, Mitch Marner, his shot differential, has never been that great at five on five. Patrick Kane, his shot differential, never been that great. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau's never been as, as great as you think it would be, but they're such creative players and they can make these ridiculous backdoor passes or just passes that no one else on the ice expects except the shooter. And it gets the goalie crazy out of position. The defense is out of position and it's a higher percentage shot. And it result when they're on the ice, even though their shot differential isn't that great, they can sustainably shoot at a high percentage, or at least get their teammates into positions where they're going to be shooting at a high percentage with consistency. I know that we don't like, you know, relying on shooting percentages for your outcomes, but when you have an elite talent like a Patrick Kane or a Mitch Marner or a Gaudreau, or when or you Barzell, combine the passing of Nicholas Backstrom with the shooting talent of Alex Ovechkin, yeah, like that puck's in the back of the net. Yeah. <laughs> You are asking for trouble if you allow that passing lane to be open. Just Evgeny Kuznetsov, also a decent passer. Yes, but I, I'm more talking like at the beginning of Ovechkin's career when that power play basically consisted of Backstrom standing on the half wall and feathering the one-timer Royal Road pass. And it just, it was just face off at center ice, everyone. I mean, Carry like on. 10, 15 years later, he's still doing the exact same thing. Not 15 years later, but 10 years later, doing the exact same thing, and it's still working. Yeah, he's in his... For 13th or 14th year in the NHL. And I think Dmitry Filipovich had a great tweet. He goes, you'd think some guy would cover him. You know, he's only done this 674 times or whatever it is. And it's a great point. Like, you would think that teams would figure out a way, but he's just, he's so good that maybe there just isn't a way. Also leads the league in uh, shots, expected goals, uh, actual goals. Uh, oh, wait, no, not actual goals yet because I think David Pasternak holds that. But 
what Ovechkin's doing is actually sustainable. What the other guys are doing isn't sustainable. And Ovechkin's on pace for 59 goals. He's a goddamn machine. But even you look at uh, when McDavid and Dreisaitl play now, a two-on-one with McDavid and Dreisaitl, no matter where the shot comes from, is going to have a higher expected goal value than a two-on-one with Alex Kerfoot and Kasperi Kapanen. Like, it just... If I were to tell you, like, okay, these four players have a two-on-one, which one would you put your money on to score? Frederick Gauthier. I know where my money would be going. (laughs) Right? You just... It's... Just because the but shot we can location. Kinda, we can kind of measure that. We can kind of measure players' ability to outperform expectations. Yeah, right? but I would say that when you're, like with McDavid, we just talked about the, the pre-shot. Like, what does he do pre-pass or pre-shot that makes the goalie or the defenseman have to respect him that much more than a different player? That way, when the pass does get across to Dreisaitl, because it will it becomes a four by six or at least a, a three by five that they have to shoot at. And well, I think the biggest thing there is does the pass get across? Because if you can get the pass across on a two on one, what's the shooting percentage? Oh, it's gotta be close to 50%. No, I'm thinking like, I was thinking North of 40 in my head. Cause I'm just yeah. thinking as a former goaltender, I'm like, shit, I got no chance on that. <laughs> yeah. Like you, it depends on where the, pa- like if the pass is in the slot, you probably have a better chance, but it was, if it's yeah, like I'm, the see, overtime, yeah, if it's I'm like the overtime like the... winner that McDavid and Dreisaitl scored, you have no chance unless right, they like, hit I'm thinking you. like backdoor far post. Like it's just, it's so hard to dive across and make that. Save. Speaking of McDavid, the goal he scored against Anaheim on Sunday night. Well, he scored three, but... I was going to ask, which one? But <laughs> The second one, where he just... Poor Jacob Silverberg, poor John Gibson. It seems to me, and I, I tweeted this, that if a, a non-McDavid, non-Crosby player scores a goal like that, it's, oh my god, it's the goal of the year. But if McDavid or Crosby do it, it's like, oh look, they did it again. See, you played hockey at a high level growing up. I played house league, and sometimes in house league, we'd have a player who shouldn't be in the level that he's in, but his parents didn't want him to move up a level. Ah, uh, yes. So he's just <laughs> he's in this lower level, just kicking the crap out of all these other guys, and it's not fair. That's McDavid in the NHL. It's just it's stupid. It's it, the things that he can do, and that's what we're saying is is analytics. Like he's an analytics darling, if I'm not mistaken. But I feel oh, like oh, every analytic says that he's the best player in the world. That even though his defensive impact is meh, his offensive impact is the best of this generation, really since Sidney Crosby's prime. And and when you think about it, I feel like the analytics even miss stuff with him because he is that <laughs> much better than pretty much anyone else. Like the analytics probably say that him and. McKinnon and Crosby are all pretty much in the same league, but they might have other players who are in the same league. I think we can agree, like William Nylander, for example, is a great transition player. I think we can all agree that McDavid is the significantly better transition player coming through the neutral zone. I think he's the best transition player in the history of the NHL, maybe since Bobby Orr. Like, I'm trying to think, who's better in transition than Connor McDavid? Like, who would you rather the, have? But the in numbers, the history of the game, maybe Pavel Bure? Like, maybe, I would say maybe the numbers say it's it's a little bit closer, but then you use your eyes and you say, okay, William Nylander kind of snakes through the neutral zone. He's good in transition because he gets exits and entries. But when McDavid gets going, you basically have a half second to react or he's gone. Like he's just, and he's the gone. funny thing with him is that you need to give him the, the, the clean entry every time. Yeah, yeah, you need to because he'll burn by you if you try to play a tight gap on him. You, no oh. one in the league 
Yeah. Have you seen any defenseman play a tight gap on? Like, who even has the skating ability to do it? So right he, now? Oliver Ekman Larson, is probably one of the better skating defensemen in the league. And I mean, McDavid like turned might him be the only one I trust to do it. Yeah, into just, Bambi. Like, he literally turned. That's you know what we need an analytic that says how many times do you get turned into Bambi by Connor McDavid? Because I mean, that's like. <laughs> Morgan Riley's been turned into Bambi by a few players lately, but uh, sorry, this he's we're not, not the, trying to get away. From he's me. not the only person that's been turned into Bambi on that Toronto blue line. There, uh, there are a few of them. Tyson Berry has been getting Bambi defensively and looks like Bambi offensively. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not great. Uh, but what else? Getting back to analytics, what do we uh, miss? Because I feel like with defensemen, like with forwards, we have so many publicly. Um, available statistics or analytics, but I feel like with D, there's this conception that we can't analyze them properly. So what are we missing? Like, what do we rely on eye test-wise with the D? Because I feel like we we tend to rely on the eye test more as it pertains to defensemen. The way that I try to think about defense in any sport, I think, okay, what does the offense want to do the most? Like, what is the the best thing that they can do, the most efficient shot that they can generate? If if you're a forward, okay, I, I want to get in the offensive zone, I want to make, a, I want to gain the zone, I want to make a cross ice pass, and I, I want it to be in a good area. So the best way to defend that is okay. Don't give them any space. Don't give them the zone. Don't give them the entry. And don't let them make a cross-ice pass. If they're going to shoot it, let them shoot it from the outside without any passes through the middle of the ice. So to me, the, the, the metrics, we have a lot of metrics that can actually measure a lot of what I just described. We can measure whether or not you're playing a tight gap in transition. Are you breaking up plays at the blue line? Are you forcing a lot of dump-ins? Or are you allowing the clean entry a lot of the times? We, we, can, we can measure that. What we don't have in the public sphere just yet is passes to the slot, and that's something that sport logic I think is really good with. I know I've talked to Andrew Berkshire a lot about it. Agreed. Not to cut you off, um, just kind of scrolling through. The Leafs put Michael Hutchinson on waivers just now. So, ah, yes, Ian, Mr. Goalie Guru, uh, what do you think? I think that literally anything could be better. I don't know what this means. Is Kaskasuo getting called called up? Maybe. Uh, yeah, it would have to be him because I don't think they're gonna call up Joseph Wall yet. Is no, he's too young. But sorry, I'm just happy that something's happening because. He's, he doesn't look like an NHL goalie for a couple of years now. Okay, so. so we're gonna shift and go back to the analytics, but I feel like that is news that really pertains to Ian's well-being and mental makeup. So well, I just I'm tired of watching a, a shot hit him in the chest and bounce off of it, or in and, the glove and, and just doesn't get caught. It's funny. It's like the James Reimer concerns about his rebound control, except they're actually real. <laughs> All right, so we're we're going back to defensemen. I think yeah, pa- passes allowed to the slot. You can actually Sport Logic has a stat. It's called passes to the slot, and you can go for and against by player. So you can see this is why I'm a big fan of Marcus Johansson. He is one of the best in the NHL at doing that. And not many wingers, you know, are thought of for that kind of skill set. But again, it matters if you can do it. That's that's then good. when you're looking at. So when I was looking at defensemen and who's good in the defensive zone. Okay, passes to the slot against who allows the most, who allows the least, right? And it shouldn't surprise you that a couple of years ago, Zdeno Chera did not allow very many passes to the slot. And when you're that big and have a hockey stick that's that long, you generally can take up an inordinate amount of space. So I don't know. Jamie Alexiak would disagree. Oh, he's a large human being as well. But I would. I'm just what not I'm saying. Good, not is, very good at hockey, though. 
privately there's data that can measure how much you take away space. Publicly, there's not. And I would assume, I would have to think that with chip tracking or at least with Jogmo coming in, there's going to be data on acceleration and your level of proximity to another player. So that would be able to accurately measure how close you are, how effective you are at taking away space. So you can measure how far you are from a player when you're uh, on a rush, let's say. So you, for a defenseman, could say, okay, you're an average of 15 feet away. That's too much. Um, can, you, can you see it when they cross the blue line? That would be my biggest, like, are you a are you stick like the way when they gain the zone? Like, I would that's assume my biggest that question. you'd probably be able to see that now. I mean, we talked about this, I think, on our first or second podcast. This is not going to be public. Um, mainly, I would think because there's biometric data also being tracked, and that just isn't allowed well, but, to be public. Well, but that stuff obviously isn't allowed to be. But my point is that in the NBA, they have uh, catch and shoot three point percentage. Is something that I can just quickly sort on NBA.com right now if I really want to. Why why can't passes to the slot be something I c- I can quickly look up on NHL.com? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's no secret that the NHL is a little bit behind when it comes to NBA data um, and just releasing... Just clean zone entry, possession zone entry, possession zone exit. Yeah, the fact that uh, we have to have someone sit exit. there and count it is a little bit ridiculous. Like, Corey should not have to sit there and count things. Now, hold up. I don't, I'm going to feel bad if the NHL just puts Corey out of business altogether, but... No, but he like, should be it, able to use his... Like, he should be able to do the analysis, because he's very much capable of doing that as well. Right? Yeah, and when you think about it, it's dumb that literally all the, like, zone entry stats that you know, the zone exit stats, the, the shot assist stats that you know, those literally all come from one human being tracking hockey. Right. And I would argue that he's he's more of a cyborg than a human being, because For I sure. don't really know when he sleeps. Sometimes I'm up late writing an article, it's 3am, and I see Corey tweeting about, uh, you know, backup goalies and stuff, I'm like... Man, this guy's awake every night at like 3, 4 a.m. doing stuff. I'm like, this guy's putting him work. He is uh, he's a machine. Yeah, I, don't know how he I does know it. Sport Logic has an algorithm that tracks, in it, I think it's like over 5,000 data points a game. It gets a lot. Um, and I would say that obviously you don't want to put Corey out of business because what he does is terrific and necessary. But if we want publicly available data, then like that's probably a. I don't want to say a casualty, but it'll allow Corey to do more analysis and more visualizations with the NHL's publicly available data if it ever gets there. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to the NHL giving fans what they uh, actually want. I remember Gary Bettman saying uh, when General Fanager, I think it was, when they went out of business, he was like, oh, yeah, no, we don't think there'd be much interest in a site like that. How many people use Cap Friendly listening to this podcast? Oh, you all God. do. I've talked to the guy that runs Cap Friendly, and there's been multiple times where he has had a well over like 50,000 people on the site. Like, yeah. they crash on free agency. It's, cr- I think the site's crashed due to um, just traffic volume for the last three years in a row. So, yeah, NHL no, I'm sure teams people literally don't want use it. Oh. NHL teams literally use it to, like, plan their rosters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think there's maybe three or four NHL assistant GMs who are capologists that maybe don't require cap-friendly because of how 
good they are and the sources that they have within the league that they can get that yeah, data. Yeah, the Leafs, Leafs capologists are really good at managing the cap. Yeah. Um, well, Pridham <laughs> helped write the cap. Yeah, and he's doing a great job of uh, using using the most of it. Well, yeah. I think Marner's going to go on LTIR, so he's definitely going to have some shenanigans to do over the next month he's, and a half. That's going to open up a lot of cap space, a lot more than it probably should. But yeah, cap-friendly <laughs> is definitely, it's it's living proof that, and so is general manager, that a site like this is warranted and very much in demand for hockey fans because the more... Um, the more hockey fans we're creating, they're they're educated. Like they they want to learn about more than just oh I'm gonna sit down on the couch at seven o'clock and watch the game, right? And clearly Vegas saw value in it because they literally hired the guy, like they hired Tom Parashka, <laughs> so they saw value in it, which would indicate to me that it has some value because you're not just gonna hire someone. Well, you could and teams do. You you not just gonna hire someone and pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars if you don't really have a use for them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Peter Shirelli, I thought, was very useful in Edmonton. But his track record speaks for itself. I'm not even going to go down that road. <laughs> We're not. This is an analytics That's podcast. A, I think that was, was that a Gord Miller quote? I'm trying to remember who said it. Someone said that Peter Shirelli's resume speaks for himself. Like, he's bad? No, no. I know who it was. It was Jim Matheson. Uh, Oh, yes. that's my baddie. That's like, it's a parody account like of itself at this point. But to quickly finish up the topic of what do analytics miss, I guess just doing in quick bullet points, odd man rushes, a big one for me. Your uh, ability to close space. Yeah, closing space. To be fair, I think in the neutral zone we have it, in the defensive zone we don't. We don't have it. Yeah, that's sort of And that's the biggest one. Is... Yeah, we, have new- we can measure neutral zone defense pretty well right now. Measuring defensive zone defense, you know, stopping the cycle, puck battles, we're not quite as good at that. Um, passes to the slot, both offensively and defensively preventing them, I think are a huge one for me. Yes, very important. And that could help tell you, like, to be honest... That could be the difference between like a four and a six million dollar defenseman. And maybe this is just me being an old man, but effort is something that isn't going to show up on a stat chart like William Nylander, for example. But if you watch him play, you can be like, dude, you can just try a little bit harder and you can be better. And he has been lately and he's been unbelievable lately. If he keeps playing like this, oh my God, I think he's going to make a fan even out of some of his biggest haters. Yeah, I mean, there are people who don't like Nylander and refuse to like Nylander, and you're not going to change their mind. Um, There are people within the hockey world that feel that way. But at the end of the day, like, if you actually just watch with an open mind, you will see that he, like every other player, has warts, but he also has an insane amount of talent. And I think it's going to become. And I think that's very, what bothers people is that he very apparent with Marner out for a while. And I think the the part with Nylander that's weird is that people know he's ridiculously talented. I mean, if you watch the World Championships that one year where he won MVP, it's just like, yeah, this guy is ridiculously talented. It reminds me of kind of like remember Nathan McKinnon when he would dominate the World Championships, and you're just thinking, yeah, this guy's gonna break out. This guy is just game changing talent, and he never broke out. The shooting percentage is always low, and you're thinking, this is weird. Like the the talent is there, but the production isn't there. I'm not saying that Nylander is going to be Nathan McKinnon, but the, I think the idea is that if he just put in more effort without the puck and didn't you know, float in and out of games sometimes, that he could be a true game changer. I've compared him to Tyler Sagan in the past. Nathan McKinnon, I think, is a bit too high of a comparable for him now because of what McKinnon's done in these last few years. But 
can William Nylander be a top 30 or top 40 forward in the NHL? I think he can be with his talent, but he needs to be more engaged. And lately he has been. So with Mitch Marner out of the lineup over the next month, I think it's going to be maybe month and a half or two months based on what we know about high ankle sprains. But I'm really interested to see what Martin, uh, with Nylander can do with this increased role because I've always believed in his talent. And I think he knows that this is a huge audition here. And this is kind of a chance for him to prove a lot of fans wrong. And I think he's going to be able to do it. So, so here's hoping he keeps playing the way he has lately. All right. So that's kind of the meat and potatoes topic. We're going to have, I would say, we're introducing a new segment. Don't have a name for it yet, mainly because we just, I don't know, the segment idea just kind of came to us and we're going to go with it. So essentially what's going to happen is every podcast, we're going to spend two to three minutes um, just hitting a quick topic explaining what it is. So it could be a stat, it could be something that was talked about, it could be something that somebody sent in. But essentially we'll just, we'll break it down to its simplified form so that it becomes uh, an un- something that's understandable for people who generally wouldn't understand the very fine points of hockey. Make sense, Ian? I, I'm with you. I'm super excited. What, what's the, the, the inaugural uh, edition of this unsponsored, unnamed event? Um, it's going to be the difference between descriptive and predictive stats. Love it. Okay. Uh, and can, I, I, can I offer my quick explanation that I always try to do with one sentence if I can? Yeah, you, uh, yes, one sentence. <laughs> you can describe what has happened or you can predict what's going to happen. Yes. So essentially a descriptive stat states what's happened in the past. So X player had this many goals or this many shots on net kind of thing. Whereas a predictive stat, um, it basically tries to forecast what happens in the future, but it needs to have three things, right? It needs to have enough data so that weird bounces and randomized events that happen in hockey become irrelevant. So a sample size of five isn't going to cut it. Um, It has to be repeatable from either year to year or over a large player sample. And it has to be related to either what's happening in the game or winning and losing games. So it has to be either result-based or what's happening. And one of the examples that someone within an NHL team gave me was uh, Team 1 has 52% Corsi and they've taken 52 shots for every 48 that the opponents have had. That's a descriptive statistic. But Team ha- 1 has 52% Corsi. I would expect them to have 52 goals for every 48 that the opponents get would be a predictive way of looking at it. Okay, because the, the thing that I always think of with descriptive and predictive, goals are about as, de- as descriptive as it gets. Yeah. Those happened. Like, there's no changing it. That puck went in the net. That happened. Expected goals are more of a concept, you know? Like, yeah, well, so- what's it? I actually it's an expected goal, you know what I mean? I it's actually like, well, asked that- this person about expected goals because I said I'm like, is it technically expected goals is predictive, isn't it? And this person said, Well, technically it's not, because when you say team X had three point five expected goals tonight, it's not really predictive because it's taking stuff based on what happened in the past. You aren't really making a prediction that they're gonna score three point eight goals or three point five goals because that data's already happened, right? So it's it's not really all that predictive. Where it gets predictive is if you say, okay, this team is averaging 
this many expected goals when they get this many shots from the slot and they get this many shots from the slot on a given basis, then you can start using it to predict essentially how many expected goals they'd have See, on a given I night. feel like you're like twisting the words a bit. I feel like with expected goals, it can be both descriptive and predictive. It can describe what's happened and it can also predict a bit of what's happened. Whereas goals tend not to be that predictive. You know what I mean? Oh, the shooting yeah. percentage, the save percentage, very volatile. A lot of weird bounces in hockey. That's why you want to control the run of play and have the most shots and chances because in a crazy game like hockey, sometimes weird bounces are going to happen. So it's better to control 60% of all the shots and chances than 50 because you're more likely to get a bounce to go your way. And that's sort of what this person was saying is for every, if you control 60% of the shots, then you would sort of expect to score 60 goals for every 40 goals that the other team was scoring, right? So that's provided that you're, you have good shot quality as well, or at least league average. Right. Shot but quality. that's more of the predictive side of it. Whereas descriptive is sort of, it's happened in the past. We're using it to evaluate things that have happened in the past and it can be used in a predictive fashion, but that's sort of the difference and between my big gripe and with some of the war metrics is that I find that a lot of them are descriptive as opposed to it, predictive. Yes. And I care way more about predictive than descriptive, but I understand the, the value behind descriptive points. Goals, assist, points are very descriptive. But if I want to know what a player is likely to perform in the, in the future, I'm going to look more at expected goals. I'm going to look more at like their shot generation. And I'm going to look at something like shot assists and passes to the slot right. instead of actual assists because those are more repeatable and those are more likely to predict future assists. Right. So if you're looking to predict assists, then you can look at things like you mentioned, passes to the slot. Um, and expected assists but i would say passes to the slot is a pretty pretty good one passes to the net front so that is our quick hit of the episode i'm sure we'll have some type of fancy name by the time we're back next week we'll come up with something oh yeah of course we will and now we'll hit uh we're gonna hit the mailbag um here's a fun one for you and i'm gonna let you answer this first Uh uh-oh taylor hall to the abs good fit package Give me your thoughts. Well, it's just, it's not going to happen because he's going to be playing for the Oilers pretty soon. So Can you imagine? The only problem is that he's going (laughs) to just, just like redo the trade. Like, like, you know how they say like no take backsies? Like how about, how about some take backsies? Yeah, no take backsies. Taylor Hall for Adam Larson. Like just, let's just. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Ray Shiro is absolutely calling no takesies backsies. Like he's not doing that trade, but let's say let's say he goes to the Abs, right? Obviously, he fits in on their top line, right? That maybe pushes. I want Rantanen down to the Kadri line, or Landeskog, one of the two. But he'd play with Nathan McKinnon, would he not? Honestly, or would you I spread that, that out? Such I'd spread it out because I think Taylor Hall and Nathan McKinnon are both two of the top five, two of the top ten puck transporters in the league right and then so, you can feed off like i remember kadri and hall played together at the world juniors for canada and they were really good together obviously uh i don't remember all i do remember is they were both on the ice when eberly scored the tying goal against the u.s the second time he did that um I want to oh, that was the game where they were down by like two goals with like five minutes left in the third, and he scored both goals. Mm-hmm. But then, then they lost in overtime because Petrangelo pinched. 
Am I remembering that right? Yes. And I just remember Gord Miller's call and it was just, he's done it again. So like, I, if there was a clutch rating oh, in World Juniors, like level 99 for Jordan. Oh, he's the most, and Bob McKenzie said that, he's the most clutch player in the history of the World Juniors. And I don't even think it's close. Like, when you think about it, in the year he scored against the Russians, he scored the game tying goal and the shootout goal to send them to the gold medal game. And then I think he scored the empty netter to clinch the gold medal, too. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Kasperi Kapanen is more clutch. Just throwing that out there. Ah, uh, yes, that goal. But would you think that he would play... He could play with Kadri, so then you do split up the two. That's two pretty yeah. good lines. But what do you... I just feel like if the you Paul and McKinnon to together, it, I would only do that late in the game if I, like, desperately the power play. Just, yeah, or, or, like, if there's, like, five minutes left in the game and I haven't been able to generate much and I'm down by a goal, I'm like, you know what? McKinnon Hall, just go out there. Let's see if we can do something crazy. But I think Hall's good enough to run his own line. I think McKinnon's good enough to run one of the top five lines in hockey by himself. I think he's that good. So I'd love the idea of having McKinnon and Taylor Hall on the ice each for, what, you could do that for like 75% of the game? Like, I would say probably 40 minutes a night each. Yeah, or 40 like, minutes. That's, that's two-thirds of the yeah, game. Two-thirds, two-thirds of, the game. of the game. You have at least one of them on the ice. I, I like the idea of that. Yeah, that's... But so what would the package have to be going back? Because you can remove, there are probably three players that wouldn't be going the other way. Kale McCarr, Nathan McKinnon, and probably Nico Randon. Uh, would you, uh, Bowen Byram, I got to think, is also in the, is like untouchable. Yeah, but I would say outside of that. When was the last time a player of Taylor Hall's caliber was traded at the deadline? I'm thinking Ilya Kovalchuk. Oh, I, I was going to say player of his caliber. I mean, you could make the argument that the P.K. Subban trade was, but he hasn't been very good this year. Oh, no, I'm thinking at the deadline rental. Oh. Ooh. I can't even... Eric Eric Carlson Eric, was a yeah, deadline. Was... It was... But that was such a weird circumstance. Everyone knew Ottawa had to trade him. They um, didn't get proper Maybe value. it wasn't deadline, but it was January. Like, Dion Phaneuf? Like, he was an impact player when Burke traded for him in Toronto. Oh, my God. That's I thought like you meant, like, recently. Ago. I thought you meant the time that Toronto traded him to Ottawa. Oh, I'm no. like, that was sunk cost. He was replacement level. What's wrong with you? No, no, no. <laughs> I was talking when he was acquired. Because that was a big trade. That was, like, a seven-player trade. And uh, people forget that before the ankle injury, Dion Phaneuf was really good. He was very good. Like, I remember being he... young and very excited about that trade. And then after the ankle injury, he just couldn't skate anymore. And poor guy, it was just done. But uh, okay, so what, what, you, what would the package have to be? I would. It I would have I, to be I, a player I, off the roster, probably a prospect. Teams are boring. Teams want a pick, a prospect, and a roster player. Teams never want to get creative with these things. See, so if, you're looking at. A, I'm a first. I'm the Devils. Like this is a good first round. I'm asking for Colorado's top pick, and like their first round pick this year, and probably. Uh, based on what New Jersey needs, uh, a defenseman. And it won't be Kale McCarr, so you can scratch him off. Maybe it's Sam Gerrard. Connor Timmons. Connor Timmons is another one. Like, I think Sam it would Gerard. have to be Gerrard. I'm not giving up Sam Gerrard. But you're getting Taylor Hall. The guy won the Hart Trophy last year. I'm getting Taylor year. Hall for two months. And then he's going to Edmonton. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one. I don't think they no, can afford him. <laughs> and Colorado can. Exactly. So. That's why I think he he actually might be apt to re-sign there, right? You've got, he's got friends in Colorado. Like they, it's become apparent that he is friends with McKinnon and he is friends with Kadri. Um, 
I think he trains with a couple of the other guys in the summer as well. So if I'm New Jersey, you know who else he's friends with? Who? Connor McDavid. Yeah, but the thing is, is I don't know if they can't afford him, so it doesn't matter. Uh, they can find a way to make it work. Let's see. I how, how much? Don't think they can. Is there any salary that they can? Uh, hmm. Okay, so let's just say, like, the question was Colorado, so we'll stick there. Edmonton's way more fun. <laughs> but in Colorado, what, you're looking at, what, a first, Connor Timmons, and... No, I would think that would be... If you're getting that type of defensive prospect or player, like, if you're getting Sam Gerrard, let's say... You're, I, I'm not giving up Sam Gerrard even to acquire Taylor Hall. I'm not... Oh, see, I think Colorado would give up Sam Gerrard. I think Sam Gerrard could become a top-pairing defenseman, and he's on a great contract. Well, I mean, you're going to have to give up. Like, if you're giving up Connor Timmons, let's say, the first-round pick basically is, like, that's absolutely going to have to be in the deal. But I think there has to be some I think a first of, is going to have to be in no matter what. See, I think there has to be some type of contingency where it's, if he doesn't resign, you like, we get this. If he does oh, if resign, he resigns, it's got to go up, like, exponentially, right? Like... Yeah, that's kind of why I'm thinking, like, maybe it's... That was the Eric Brandstrom part of the Mark Stone trade, I think. I forget was what that, that If Mark was. Stone signed an extension with Vegas, then they would include Eric Brandstrom in the trade. Right. So that would be my only contingency, is that I'm only giving up someone like Samuel Gerrard so if, if I know that Hall's extending. And Hall's not... I don't think Hall's ready to commit to Colorado. I don't think he's ready to commit anywhere. I think he wants to test the open market. That's why I'm saying, like, maybe it's uh, Sam Gerrard is the piece that goes originally with, like, maybe a fourth-round pick or a third-round pick that turns into a first if Hall resigns. Something like that, right? Where it's, like, a, a pick, but it turns into a first if Hall resigns. Is there any chance New Jersey turns this around a little bit and they try to hold on to Hall and try to convince him to stay, and then he still walks? They can try. I mean, I have my thoughts, but... Uh, I would say uh, that you don't. You also don't want to get sued. <laughs> um, I would think that they will. I think New Jersey will get it turned around. I might be too late, um, especially because if they're going to trade Hall, they're going to have to make a decision in the not too distant future. And unless they get on a really big run here, you're going to be making that with a ton of ambiguity. And uh, Ray doesn't like dealing in ambiguity. And if you're uh, an Islanders fan listening right now, uh, remember how much you liked it when you didn't get anything in return for a top 10, top 20 player in the world walking in free agency? Might want to cash in if it's looking likely that he's not going to resign with you. So, And I would think that like with the way that the Devils are built, they're built young. Like They got two really young centers. They got a young defenseman. Damon Severson, I think, is like the oldest young core guy and he's 23 24 no he's gotta be older than that damon Severson. no i think damon severson is the same age as i am he's um, 25 okay so he's a year older um then you have ty smith coming jesper boquist is a rookie jesper bratt like i think that's the timeline mackenzie blackwood is only in his second and a half season so if they get a good package for Taylor Hall, unless he wants to stay in New Jersey, which he very well might, I would almost I think you have that. to trade him, right? You have to consider the option that he might want to stay in New Jersey. But if you can't, why, why would he? But if you're Taylor Hall, why do you want to stay in New Jersey? But then again, hockey players are boring and don't like moving their stuff. So <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with it. Um, 
You don't think hockey players being boring and no, like, I don't never think it has anything teams? to do with it pertaining to Taylor Hall. Ah, I like that because yes. he's actually an interesting NHL player. There are very few of those. Um, okay, so now that we've covered that with Taylor Hall, this is a non-analytic, non well, it's a hockey question, but it's a, kind of a different one. Um, what improvements can be made to improve in arena experience, basically make it more fun? Because, I mean, like, you and I have been to Leaf games, and they suck! Well, I think that's more of a culture issue than it. Like, for example, you look at um, a Nashville Predators game. Carolina. Vegas. Oh, Vegas is Uh, awesome. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. We make fun of Boston fans for, like, being, like, you know, dumb and all riled up. But it's like, hey, their games are fun and the crowd's into it, you know? I think what Vegas is doing, like, Vegas has a different in-arena experience than basically any other team. Like, think about the intro. Remember in their first year, they literally brought a dude out in a knight's armor to fight another guy? Like, They do that, like, in the playoffs, it was a common thing. Right, so they, they do things differently. Now, of course, it's Vegas, so you have to do things differently because it's all about entertainment. But it's a great point because great my, girlfriend, my girlfriend hates hockey. She doesn't like it, but... I, I'm talking her into going to see a Vegas Knights game in Vegas because we're, we're doing a trip to L.A. and Vegas later in the year. And she's actually willing to go watch a Vegas game. Yeah, the only time fun. she's willing to watch hockey, she's only willing to watch hockey if it's Connor McDavid. Who is or, fun. <laughs> yeah, or if it's like some Vegasy kind of thing. And I'm like, well, there's a good point of like a new fan potentially who doesn't give two shits about the actual sport. But you do some other things that help bring them in. And I thought Carolina did a fantastic job of doing that last So season. here's a fun one for you because you brought up your girlfriend. I took my sister to the TFC home opener a couple years ago. Toronto FC is the, the team that plays in Toronto. Um, and it's the soccer team. And she literally does not care about any sports at all. She sat there at the home opener and watched the supporter section the entire time. Because she was like, oh, look at that guy. Look at that guy. Oh, and- What's the supporter section? People have no idea what that is. Okay, so the supporter section is basically, if you actually, they do it in Europe for hockey. There is, it's generally in an end. So it's either in the north end or the south end of the arena or the stadium. Um... It's basically standing room only, and it's where all the chanting and flags and drums and flares and smoke machines and all of that sort of nonsense occurs. And it's TFC's kind of been known to have some of the rowdiest supporters in North America when it comes to this kind of stuff. But if you go overseas, like the Bayern Munich supporters or in Barcelona, when there are like rivalry games, people light things on fire. Like, full things on fire. And there's drums, there's chants. Like, TFC's kind of become well-known for doing the Viking clap in, like, the 60-odd minute of the game. And they do it because Altador scored the MLS Cup-winning goal um, sort of in, I want to say it was, like, the 68th minute or something like that. And so it's representative, and, and it's very entertaining because they're consistently engaged. There's consistent chanting. There's always something kind of going on and it'd be really cool if North American hockey kind of took that over because they do it in Europe I've been to games in Berlin and they have an entire supporter section in the home end and it's it's really cool to see and and that would be something that you could be a part of fun fact I was living in Milan back in 20 what was it 2017 I was living there and they, I, I went and saw a Serie A hockey game, which, yeah, that's a real thing. Yes, uh, it is. Eight, 
yeah, HC Milano, and I'm thinking, well, how good can these guys be? Surprisingly decent level of hockey. The fans were nuts. It's literally more fun to go watch the fans. <laughs> I had more fun at this, like, this, I don't even know what tier of hockey you'd compare it to, like, ECHL level, probably worse. Mm, but No, there's definitely more skill involved, because there's more space. Oh, maybe not the Italian but league, I, but in the Swiss league, the German league. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, Swiss, yeah. German, those are higher. Italian league, we're looking at, like, like the Swiss B league, you know, or, like, the German B league, or we're not looking at the highest level of hockey, but... The experience at the game was one of the most fun hockey experiences I've had in my life. And look at and the... I didn't know any of the chants. It was in a different language, but I was just like, holy shit, this is fun. But look at the world championships. Like, you hear Gordon Ray Ferraro talk about it all the time with, like, the drums that the Latvians bring. Why can't we do that in hockey? Why? Because everyone shows up in a suit to the game? Like... I think because it's not part of our culture, we've just... It's been this way for so long, especially in places like Toronto and Vancouver, where... All the tickets go to the suits because supply and demand. And when right. rich people get these tickets, all of a sudden, like, we saw this in Golden State a little bit where they, they got a bit less loud because, you know, they, the team got more popular, more rich people got the tickets, but it still always had that fun atmosphere. In Golden yeah. So State, what, whereas... what TFC has done, and I know basically a ton of teams do this with their supporter sections. I know it gets done in Europe. Um, if you're in a supporter section, you are not subject to the same rates. So, like, um, my friend has season tickets in a supporter section with TFC. And if you actually boil it down, he pays about 14 or $15 a ticket plus tax. If you have season seats in a non-supporter section, the way that team's been playing four major championships in the last four years or four major finals, you're paying closer to 75 100 bucks a seat. And it's the same... But I'd, I'd have more fun in the support. Oh my god, as someone who has sat in both seats, like, on a, I, don't, I haven't missed a game in over a year now, it's so much fun, and I think the in-game experience, I don't, like, don't throw t-shirts at me, I don't care, they're all extra large, no one's gonna wear them, like, don't do things on the video board where you're picking a coin or whatever, no one cares. Have something You're telling that, me that the kiss cam isn't inventive dude, literally the dumbest and thing ever. creative and it's the only thing people care about? Right. And so I think have drums, like have a section where it's drums or you have a supporter section and basically, and they have signs at, at all the soccer ones where it's basically, if you're in this section, A, there's going to be people standing, there's going to be flags, you're going to have an impeded view. Like, don't complain because we're not doing anything. You chose to sit here kind of thing. So have a section that's like that. And then if someone wants to come sit in a suit, then that make it, that's their problem. All right. Important question. What is your favorite intermission thing to watch on the ice right after, let's call it the end of the first period, or the end of the second period? Uh, the goalie races? No. Uh, little kids playing hockey against each other? No. The center ice shootout to win a Absolutely car? not. Um, what are some other I like ones? the Ottawa Senators when they dress up as the prime ministers in those giant heads and do that. Or in New Jersey, we did like bubble hockey. So you'd go in those big orb, bubbles. Orb soccer. Yeah, the orb. The orb that's what I mean. Favorite thing ever. I love Yeah, it. we did like the orb, the orb soccer. And that was, that is, it's so entertaining. I've been thinking about like paying to go do it. There are places oh, so where you can fun. actually play it's it. It's so and, much but, like, fun. <laughs> I'd just be trying to like level the crap out of people. I wouldn't even pay attention to the ball. So I went with my friend who's like, I don't know if anyone's seen me, but I'm basically like 120 pounds and I'm five foot five. 
I went with a couple. But you're feisty. You're like Brendan Gallagher. I went with a couple of friends, and one of my really good friends is like six foot four, two thirty. Used to be a football player, and I was like, "Okay, like let me try and hit you. Let's run at each other." There is a video, and it's quite literally us running at each other, and me subsequently going airborne, flying about ten. I'm doing feet. the math on that. I'm like, okay, so force is mass times acceleration. acceleration, and. Rachel's puny and that other guy's big. I'm like, yeah, she's going to go fly. I literally <laughs> went airborne, like fully in the air, did like two revolutions. But it, it's so much fun. I, to anyone listening, highly recommend you do it. How safe are you when you go flying like that? Because I actually want to try it now with one of my bigger friends. Uh, nothing happened. Like I literally okay. was fine. I kept going and I wanted to do it again. And I'm he was like, like I'm going to end up killing you. So we just didn't. And I have a buddy who's like 280. Who could, I'm like, okay, I want to try this now. Alrighty, so now we've talked about bubble soccer today. Um, so when Ian suffers his next major injury, uh, be like, hey, I just got back from orb soccer. I have a concussion, a few Ian, broken limbs. But... I didn't even get hurt. Yeah, see, that's how I, I... I'm not believing that this actually happened now. I'm realizing that you made this story up. Okay, so I will, t- I will send you the video because it is so good. <laughs> And next you're going to say, oh, yeah, and then we went out and ate kale afterwards. Like, okay, now I know you're not telling me. I did not eat kale. My dad's trying to convince me to eat kale salad. I'm like, Dad, no. Oh, Mike Babcock is your dad. That's awesome. No, Mike Babcock <laughs> is not my dad. <laughs> well, the kale salad's outstanding. The kale, see, oh, kale Caesar salad I could, I could get on board with, but I'm like a spinach salad person, so. It's all about those kale chips. Just a bit of olive oil, a bit of, a bit of sea salt on there. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of effort when I could just Uber Eats McDonald's to my house. So yeah, see that's that's a problem. Okay, so with that, I am now going to pack <laughs> McDonald's and head to New Jersey um, to see all my friends, um, and I guess we'll talk next week. All right. Uh, I hope that they lose like five nothing, and then there's like this really awkward tension afterwards, and like you're drinking with them, and they give you inside stories that. You can't tell on the podcast, but you're definitely going to tell me in private. Oh, so awesome. no, here's the thing. All the people I'm going to see, with the apart from one of them, we all used to work at the Devils and we don't anymore. So we are all going and none of us have to worry about any inside information because none of us work there anymore. And then you have to worry about saying positive things about the Devils. I wish I could be a fly in the wall there. That's going to be a fun, fun time. You, you have fun in New Jersey. Uh, try not to get too hurt. And uh, we'll be back next week. All right. Sounds good. See you later, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.